0: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. The search for authenticity has always been an urgent human need, and paradoxically, nothing does more to satisfy this intellectual yearning than the discovery of physical objects, objects that bear concrete witness to something from the past, real stuff. When it comes to religious belief, that means religious relics, which is our subject this week. Leaving aside for the moment the contentious matter of whether such artifacts are genuine or not, their prevalence raises the fascinating question of how we should think of their agency in the real world. Here's the archaeologist Christopher Guston speaking on an earlier edition of Naked Reflections. So Keith Thomas famously described the Catholic Church as an enormous mechanism for the production of magic. And of course, Protestantism's criticism of Catholicism was that it was too magical. No doubt Keith Thomas was thinking of more than just religious relics when he spoke of magic. For a faith which has taken the trouble to categorise its relics into a sort of league table, They clearly matter. And the same goes for other religions too. With me to discuss religious relics are a regular contributor, Dr. Ilari Bernocchi, a tutor at the University of Warwick, who completed her PhD in the History of Art here at the University of Cambridge, and a soon-to-be PhD graduate, Mohammed Ahmed, Wolf Institute scholar and a specialist on Muslim-Jewish relations. Relics are an important aspect of so many religions, Muhammad. To what extent do you think they represent authenticity, or do they simply end up as idolatry? I think
1: we should maybe look at it, maybe not in this sort of dichotomous way, because maybe it's the fact that they are authentic that sort of leads to idolatry. In fact, the more authentic the object is, or the more authentic the message is, then the more likely... it could lead to idolatry. Perhaps the bigger question could be, should objects be venerated, and if so, in what way? And I think that's that's what these three Abrahamic faiths have really tried to grapple with for centuries. I think oftentimes God is in the background of such things. We have a famous hadith in Islam that there were some pious people living in a town, and these pious people then passed away and the people missed these people a great deal and it sort of reminded them of God when they were around. So Satan comes to them in the form of an old man and says, let's make a statue of these people. Let's make a statue of these people so that when we see the statue, we're reminded of God. Eventually, sort of people stop just passing by that area on their way to the temple. And they start to go to that area and they start to congregate there and they start to pray there. And eventually, as generations pass, they start to worship these people. And it's sort of this parable that really plays a a very important role in Islam.
0: And that parable suggests, of course, the the dangers of relics and and some kind of worship, some kind of idolatry.
1: There's a fine line. I think when it comes to the way that Islam has to deal with with relics, I think Islam, Judaism and Christianity sort of deal with it in very, very different ways. I think a great justification was given by uh, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, who was a very, very famous early Islamic jurist. And In fact, he sort of veered more towards the literalist or strict side of the spectrum when it came to these sorts of things. So it's interesting to see his take on it. And when he was asked why, you know, we do things like this, why do we have relics? Why do we go to the prophet's grave and and touch it and things like this? The prophet's companions never did this. and And he replied and he said, well, they saw him with their very own eyes when he was alive. They enjoyed his presence directly. They kissed his very hand. They fought each other over the remnants of his ablution water. They shared his purified hair on the day of the greater pilgrimage. And if he spat, it would never hit the floor. You know, it was always caught on someone's hand or someone's sword. And we don't have that tremendous fortune of sharing this. So we throw ourselves on his grave as a mark of commitment, reverence and acceptance. And perhaps we can even kiss it. And Muslims are moved to these matters purely out of emotion, love and
0: devotion. So that's a little bit about the religious justification for relics, particularly from a Muslim perspective, Ilaria. Tell us about it from an artistic perspective.
2: Relics, first of all, have to do with the body. And the body, in a way, it's the very first shrine of the soul, the original shrine of the soul. Early reliquaries, relics were very, very popular during the Middle Ages. They were very important tools of faith. They were considered to have miraculous powers, particularly powers of healing, and they had to do with the closeness of the body, which is what Muhammad was was saying. It's very similar in this sense to the Islamic tradition. The idea that since we are very distant from the model itself, from the saint itself, and for the Christian, The Christian has to try to replicate the life and virtues of a saint or even the life of Christ, ideally. Of course, the idea of owning something, of touching something, of kissing it, of holding it, carrying it, wearing it, kneeling before it, having some form of physical interaction with it was extremely important. So in art, relics became enshrined into reliquaries that very often had shape, they were very, very richly decorated, they were beautiful objects, Um, and they tried to tell the story of the relic that was inside. So sometimes you would have a piece of skull that would stay into the bust, or a piece of hand, of the bones of a hand, that would stay into beautiful relics in silver with the hand. So the object, the artistic object, wasn't something just to behold, but were a particular type of artistic object, because it could be very often handled. So they were a real medium between worshippers and the faithfuls and the relic itself, and and therefore between men and God, between humanity and sanctity. So this is a very unique type of artwork in this sense, because it's really has a form of physical mediation with the sacred.
0: But that role of the relic as an intermediary, if you like, seems to go against the emphasis of a lack of an intermediary, Muhammad, in terms of the, what can I say, strict monotheism of of Islam, and not only Islam, also Judaism. Whereas Christianity has this sort of, this tension, if I can put it that, Hilaria, with the physicality, the presence of Christ, Christ, a God coming on earth through Christ. But Muhammad, do Muslim scholars not see the danger of that intermediary role?
1: It's mainly the spiritual vacuum that's left behind by these individuals that leads to people sort of coping mechanism. And in Islam, you're absolutely right, and we, there are sort of different, different views. Um, and Islam has a very strong emphasis on Tawheed, or the oneness of God, like Judaism does. Um, Christianity is similar, but it, it does, of course, have a, little, a few differences. But we do see sort of the strain of, I think, Protestantism does sort of espouse some of the similar values when it comes to these sort of intermediaries. But in Islam, yeah, I mean, especially in the modern day, when we come to more sort of strict, maybe Salafi type of interpretations of Islam, sort of very strongly reject any sort of intermediaries that can happen between the person and God. And the relationship really is just down to that. And there's no object and there's no individual that can help you in that. Whereas... That sort of majority of Muslims take this concept, and this is, I think, the key concept when it comes to Muslims and relics. It's the concept of tabarruk, and tabarruk means that you can take barakah from your association with some sort of relics. Let's say perhaps, you know, you were able to touch the hairs of the Prophet Muhammad. There is some blessing in that. There is some barakah in that, but that can never be the cause for your salvation. But we do have sort of these very interesting kernels of, of stories that exists. From the time of the Prophet Muhammad, one of them, for example, when the Prophet Muhammad touched one of the carpets of one of his favorite companions. And many, many years later, that carpet had now gone old and they wanted to throw it away. So they put it in a fire and it wouldn't burn. And the companion said, oh, I remember the Prophet Muhammad touched this carpet and he said, whatever I touch cannot burn. It's from these really sort of beautiful little stories, I think, that we sort of get this feeling and image and thought of tabarruk You can get some sort of benefit, but it's not tangible enough in order to sort of give you some sort of salvation.
2: I have a question for Mohammed, because as a non-expert of Judaism, but knowing that Judaism is, in a way, of the three Abrahamic religions, the religion that is still waiting for the Messiah to come, and, and relics have this very important role in proving that something has happened, that the body existed. So... I was wondering what the approach, what's the notion of relics for a religion is fundamentally, whose people has been fundamentally nomadic for a big part of its history or in a minority, often segregated position for another very long part of its history and that claims to be still waiting for the revelation that the other two Abrahamic religions instead consider verified, done, happened and proved by physical objects like relics.
1: Yeah, I think it comes down to Judaism and Islam, I think, have this similarity in that uh, the relic is not the be all and the end all. So, for example, and I mean, Judaism with the destruction of the temple, Judaism really had to now deal with the fact that something which was so integral and so core to, to Jewish worship is now no longer here. You could think that of the holiest of holiest relics is no longer available. What happens? Well, there's an emphasis in Judaism in this historical period and throughout the entirety of Judaism that it's now it's really between the individual and God. It's between, you know, your connection with God that's going to cause you salvation. And it's not really through these relics. These things actually ultimately don't really matter. One day, these things will fix itself. One day, the Messiah will come. One day, this issue will no longer be here. But at the moment, it doesn't matter. And I think that's a very beautiful message as well.
0: I sometimes view the Wailing Wall or the Kotel, the Western Wall, as a kind of relic. It always seems to me very odd from a Jewish point of view, because relics are are not something that I was brought up with or that I, I apply in my teaching. And yet, going to the Western Wall is a pilgrimage, and it's as if you touch the stones and you are physically and spiritually nourished along the lines that you actually mentioned, Elaria, and yet listening to Muhammad's Hadith about the dangers of praying to stones, as it were, uh, exists very much in the kotel. But there's something else as well, which is some of the more charismatic Hasidic groups go and visit the graves of ancient rabbis. And the very pilgrimage of going to a grave, touching the headstone, praying at the grave, applying what's called in Hebrew zakut avot, the merit of the ancestors, helps them in their individual relationship with the Almighty. So the irony is in this conversation that we have three very different religions that we're speaking to, each of which claims to have a certain relationship with uh, with relics and Christianity most obviously of all. But yet Islam and Judaism also do, but we do it very quietly. So not many people know.
1: I just think it's so interesting. We have, of course, the city of Mecca. And originally, Quran uses two terms for the city of Mecca. There's Mecca and there's Bakka. And Bakka comes from the Arabic word baka which means to cry. Um, and I just thought it's very interesting, sort of the link with the Wailing Wall and, and Mecca also uh, coming from the root word in Arabic, to cry.
0: Let's pick up on that, Mohammed. You've mentioned Mecca, and I can't help but ask you about the Kaaba, which, of course, was was it not a pagan shrine? Would it be deemed as a relic of a type, or was, would that be seen as a problematic term?
1: I think it depends on the manner that you look at the Kaaba. If you look at it from the traditional Islamic lens, it's not a pagan shrine at all. It really is uh, the legacy of Abraham, so it's actually the shrine of Abraham, the relic of Abraham, and it's through that sort of monotheism that okay, yeah, you have a few intermediary years of of idol worship. And so that's sort of how the tradition treats the manner in which the Kaaba was used for idol worship. But ultimately, it's an Abrahamic relic. In fact, if you really look at the Islamic tradition, it's a pre-Abrahamic relic. It says that the Kaaba was built by Adam, the first man, and that Abraham set the modern foundation of the Kaaba. And that the Prophet Muhammad, of course, also uh, it ended up becoming the final Qibla, the final direction of prayer. It's interesting how relics are not just, for example, in, in Islam, one would expect perhaps most of the relics are through the Prophet Muhammad. It's not the case at all. In fact, most of the relics are probably through other prophets, pre-Muhammadan prophets that sort of filtered through and became important relics within Islam.
2: Would a relic of the Holy Cross be considered a relic in Islam as part of a relic of a prophet?
1: So that's a, it's a very good question. Um, the, the, the only area where it gets slightly complicated is when it comes to Jesus. So the Muslim belief on Jesus is that he himself wasn't crucified, that someone was crucified in his place in order to sort of to, to give the impression to the people that Jesus had been crucified, but actually Jesus was raised to the heaven. So where it contradicts the Islamic narrative, those relics are not really accepted within, within Islam. For example, the spear that is said to be put through the side of, of Jesus, that was actually, I think, given to the Pope by a Ottoman sultan after the conquest of Constantinople, because he sort of saw no, no real value in it, because in the Islamic tradition, it doesn't really hold it. Whereas when it comes to things that look like the staff of Moses that are still kept in the Topkapi Palace in Turkey and many other such relics uh, which come from previous prophets, or even if it was from Jesus, but it fit with the Islamic narrative, they are given as much importance as the relics of the Prophet Muhammad.
0: This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests, Ilaria Benocki and Muhammad Ahmed. We're discussing religious relics. Science has its own relics too, but sometimes they're not exactly enchanting. Just after the Civil War, the curators of an American medical museum received an envelope with a handwritten note containing a smallpox scab. It seems like the letter made their day, as Andrea McCollum told the story in the Naked Sciences show Past, Present, and Sausage. And I think what's really nice about some of these older relics is that if you can combine it with documented information, for example, in Virginia with the scab, it was found in a letter. So we had documented information about how it was obtained and that it was used for vaccination. If the specimen came from an actual patient and you have some information about the clinical presentation of that patient and what the patient experienced as a result of that infection, I think it can help us understand a lot about the ability for these viruses to cause disease, how these viruses are interacting with humans today today. And of course, there's a lot of really interesting historical information as well. Before the break, we touched on the question of the true cross. And I wonder, Ilaria, whether you can speak to that, both in terms of the artistic representation of the cross, as well as this incredible story about the discovery of the cross by Constantine's mother, Helena, around uh, 325.
2: The Holy Cross is probably one of the most, of course, important relics in Christianity. One of the other ones is the crown of thorns, who was, was used to be housed in the Saint-Chapelle in Paris, and then is now uh, in Notre Dame. These are the relics that were directly connected with Christ himself, with his Holy body. So it's very interesting that the discovery of the Holy Cross from an historian's point of view, of course, has to do with the mother of Constantine, so the mother of the emperor who legitimized and converted to Christianism. So the two things, in a way, coincide. It's a very strong point that this mother would be the one to discover the relic of the Holy Cross These relics were extremely popular around Europe. They couldn't be sold. They had to be gained in some way, acquired. They had to be deserved. It was a way to have Jerusalem travel outside of Jerusalem itself. So this geographical dimension was also very important. The idea that for those pilgrims who could not go to Jerusalem, which was a very expensive and very dangerous also journey, Jerusalem could come to them. And what best way to do it than to have a piece of the Holy Cross directly from Golgotha
0: and also added to the economy. Wasn't it part of the sort of the economy of the pilgrimage, the economy of the relic?
2: Absolutely. I mean, relics were an excuse to travel, were very important incentives to travel, to go and venerate a specific relic. We know of Santiago de Compostela, uh, but we know of the relic, for instance, of the Holy Blood and the famous altarpiece by Tilman Riemenschneider in the Church of St. James in Rottenburg in Germany. All of these objects created a sort of a huge economy of travelling and pilgrimages and objects that were moved around. They were diplomatic gifts, so they allowed governments to entertain diplomatic relationships with one another. They were donated by the Pope to kings and allies or by a king to another. So these they were about exchange and they were about communication and they were about movement. And, of course, it's not just... An economy but it's also a way of building churches and conceiving of the places where the relics were held that change as a result of the cult of relics so some churches which had particularly popular relics would be designed to allow masses of people to flock there on certain feasts and venerate the relics so the very outlook the very design of a church changed to incorporate these masses, come to observe a tiny, or to venerate, to touch, or to kneel in front, or again to kiss a very, very tiny object, which is very interesting.
0: Mohammed, I think that's also true, isn't it, of the architecture of some mosques? I'm thinking about Istanbul and Hagia Sophia.
1: Absolutely. So I'm, I'm sure you all know of the black stone in the Kaaba which is it's a stone said to have descended from heaven, which was originally white, but became black with the, with the sins of men. And a portion of that stone is actually in Soleimaniya Masjid in Istanbul. And yeah, absolutely, it, it, it draws people to these places. We talk about you know these relics as, I mean, within the Islamic tradition at least, as not necessarily having any power of their own, but at the same time, they do draw people in. And, you know, it does become very important, not only from a perspective of, okay, this is going to benefit me in any way, but also some sort of identity. These people start to identify with the relics. They become important national symbols. They become important regional symbols. And absolutely, Turkey, as, as you say, Istanbul especially, does have a very strong relationship with relics.
0: We talked earlier about the austere nature of Wahhabism. In Islam, but of course, in Christianity, we have a, a similar austere denomination. Some of sort of the growth of the Protestant churches and the Reformation, where there was a great deal of destruction, wasn't that an area of imagery of human figurative representation? Wasn't that just vandalism?
2: <laughs> this is a very difficult question to answer for an art historian. Of course, as an art historian, the more artworks, the better. But of course, as a historian, every phenomenon is something we observe without trying to judge it. It's very interesting, absolutely. As you said, relics were a major target of the Protestant reformers. In, here in England, they were massively destroyed, including the famous relics of Thomas Beckett. It, it was this idea, it was this elimination of edi, any mediation and intermediary between the human being and God that was very important. So relics represented this need to hold on to these objects, to hold on to something that was not direct. There was a third party in the in the relationship with God. So, of course, they had to go. So, yes, altarpieces, statues, church furnishings, relics were massively destroyed. This is, I think, of course, we know that the Counter-Reformation for the Catholic country responded very strongly to that and insisted during the Council of Trent on the importance of an emotional, personal relationship with God, insisted on the importance of art as a medium uh, in this relationship. And of course, Relics continued to play a part. So Relic belong to the same mindset in a way. They are the sort of like we say, a medieval version of what would be the counter-reformation mindset, the idea that you need a strong emotional involvement and that's fine in order to communicate with God. And that's welcome. And art has to favour that. Art has to inspire that. And after the Counter-Reformation, of course, is the task of painting and sculpture of Bernini, Baroque artists to work in that sense. But of course, before in the medieval times, relics and beautiful reliquaries and the physical acts of stroking, of touching these cases were for another version of the same principle
0: near the pulpit in the mosque itself, where the Jummah prayers and sermons are given. Tell us a little bit about the hairs of Muhammad.
1: It's not just limited to the hairs. We have the hairs, we have the teeth, we have some clothes of, of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, we have traditions that these were preserved by his companions. And in the Battle of Uhud, which is one of the very important battles in early Islam, the Prophet gets hit with a battle axe and some of his teeth fall out and, the, and they are also collected. You know, we have traditions from Muawiyah, who's a famous Umayyad caliph, and he keeps some clothes of the Prophet Muhammad. So these things were definitely circulating uh, in the early Islamic world. It does get a bit more complicated. I do want to sort of link it a little bit, maybe with with the staff of Moses. We're talking a very, very long time period now. Uh, It gets a little bit more complicated with the, the Midrash, for example, says that it was passed down through the Judean kings until the destruction of the first temple. And then it was lost and the Christian tradition is that it, it sort of stayed in Constantinople until the sack in 1204, and it was moved to France. Muslim tradition says it was kept in Constantinople and that it fell into the hands of the Ottomans. So this is where it gets a little bit more complicated, especially from an Islamic lens, is how do we venerate these things where it could perhaps be authentic and it could perhaps not be authentic? Do we still, you know, endeavor to get tabarruk and get barakah and blessing from these items? What if they're not authentic? And I think it comes down to what these items represent rather than what these items
0: are. We can't end, Ilaria, without exploring the question of authenticity as well as meaning without reference to the Turin Shroud. Does it matter whether it's authentic or not?
2: It's a very good question. I think it does matter from perhaps an anthropological and historical point of view, because what matters is how people respond to it. And that's real. And that's something that is valid for all relics in the Islamic tradition, as Muhammad was saying, but also in the Christian tradition, we have so many relics, the majority of them, particularly the relics of very, very old saints from the, the early Christianity, are quite unlikely to be actual relics. And their popularity and their importance in the Christian faith certainly favoured a lot of black market of falsification. So what is important is not the object itself, perhaps, but what it represents to people and how people respond to it and the sort of relationship, spiritual relationship and physical relationship that people establish with it.
0: Unfortunately, I'm going to have to draw a veil over this discussion. Thank you for listening and thanks to my two guests, Ilaria Benocki and Mohamed Ahmed. Please do contact us at Naked Reflections. You can find us at the Wolf Institute, send an email or Facebook message. Let us know what you think of the show. We have a wide range of genuine and valuable audio relics, which you can find by delving into our back catalogue. You can also find the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests.